It is good to be here. We are going through the um, Sermon on the Mount. And so we're going to be doing this for quite a while. It's, uh, we're, well, we're getting to be close to half through. So I think it's, this is the 13th week. So, but we're going into a lot of detail, and it's great to just take time with this. It's been eight years since I've gone through the, the Sermon on the Mount here. And so it's great for me to revisit it. I'm, I'm noticing new things and trying to relay them to you all. Um, but it's, it's great. The Sermon on the Mount is, uh, if I were on a desert island, it would be the Sermon on the Mount. That, those three chapters, if you've got those, you've got the whole thing. You've probably heard me give this analogy before, but those matroshkas, you know, those uh, Russian uh, nesting dolls, the mother dolls, matroshka means mother. Um, and so you have one doll inside the other. It's kind of like that with the scripture. And you've got the Bible. Inside the Bible, you've got the New Testament. Inside the New Testament, you got the Gospels. Inside the Gospels, you got the Gospel of Matthew. Inside of Matthew, you've got the Sermon on the Mount. And they're right in the middle, almost exactly in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Halfway through chapter 6, you have the Lord's Prayer. And the Lord's Prayer really is each one of these is a more concentrated version, a more concentrated message. And in the Lord's Prayer, if we read it correctly, correctly. If we read it through an Aramaic Hebrew lens and we understand that it's not the words as what the words are pointing to, we can see the entire message of Jesus in this one prayer, five lines. Now, in the context of what we've been doing in chapter six, remember chapter five was about redefining the law, taking the law, turning it around so that we can understand it from a kingdom point of view. Everything in the Sermon on the Mount is within the context of kingdom. So how do we look at the law from a kingdom point of view? Always through the intent, not through the legality. It's not about following rules. It's about actually fulfilling the law's intent. Chapter 6 is about redefining righteousness. And even though righteousness to the, to the Jews was a well-established and, and beautiful concept. What happened through the Pharisees' time and getting more and more legalistic, they had reduced it to three perfunctory types of duties. And it was to give charitably, give alms, and to pray and to fast. Those three areas were how they calculated their own righteousness. And of course, they did it for everyone to see so that everyone would know how righteous they are. And so Jesus is taking that and turning that around. So what he's doing here in this section, he's dealing with prayer. Last week was with almsgiving, with charitable giving. This week it's about prayer. But if we take the sermon, we get all of Jesus' teaching. And it's interesting because in Luke, the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount are scattered throughout the gospel. So in Luke 11, we have the disciples asking Jesus to teach us to pray. And he gives an abbreviated version, at least abbreviated as against Matthew, version of the Lord's Prayer. And then he goes into two stories that we're going to take a look at a little bit later. In Matthew 6, in the context of redefining righteousness, he also is showing his disciples how to pray. Let's take a look at Matthew 6, starting at verse 5. And we'll see what Jesus is up to here. He says, When you are to pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. 
And when you are praying, don't use meaningless repetitions as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. And then he says, pray in this way, and he gives us the Lord's Prayer. But before we get there, let's take a look at what he's said so far. First of all, he talks about the hypocrites. And I love the Aramaic rendering, receivers of faces. It's two words that literally mean receivers of faces. And so those who put on masks, those who put on airs, those who put a false front, project something that they don't believe in in order to be given some kind of advantage in their personal lives. This is what a hypocrite is. So he talks about the hypocrites because what are they doing? They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners. So if, if you understand in context that there were three times of ritual prayer in Judaism, they knew three times during the day they needed to pray, just like Muslims do today and Orthodox Jews do today as well. And it's a beautiful concept. We should do this ourselves. I've sometimes told people, you know, Put a special ringtone on your phone that'll ring three times during the day, and it's a call to prayer. But not, you know, actual prayer, word prayer necessarily, but just a call back to awareness, a call back to presence. Where am I? Where's my head? And to reintegrate at certain times of day, because that was what the prayer was for, ideally. It's a beautiful thing. But what the Pharisees would do was to make sure that... When that time of prayer came, they were at the busiest street corner or in the middle of the marketplace so everybody could see their righteousness. Everybody could see them praying. And as Jesus said in another place, they broadened their phylacteries, you know, those leather boxes that had the scriptures in them that they had on their forehead and on their right arms so that everybody could see those. And when they put their prayer shawl, their talit, over their head, there's tassels that that were knotted specially. They lengthened those until they were dragging on the floor. Everything that they did was for show. Everything that they did was to show everybody how righteous they were. Jesus is contrasting that when he says, when you pray, don't have that kind of agenda. Don't have that kind of intention for your prayer. Go into your inner room. And that's meant both figuratively and literally. There were rooms within a person's house that they could retreat to, that they could be alone. Or maybe it was a corner of the roof, but it was away from the rest of the hubbub of daily life within the home. Go into that inner room, he's saying. But he's also talking figuratively. Go into your inner space. Retreat into your own heart. Find the stillness. Find the silence there. Because what the Pharisees are doing is all focused externally. And there is no internal connection that's happening. That's why he says they have the reward in full. There's nothing else happening here within this prayer. So Jesus is making that kind of connection. And he says, your father who sees you in secret is going to reward you. And we talked about rewards last week. We have to understand. Because we think of reward as a payment for something that we do now. It's separated in time. We do a good thing right now or we do certain work right now. We've earned a payment that we will get later. We will be rewarded later. And in Christian thinking, that means in the next life, in the afterlife. But the reward that is happening here is the connection that we have when we lose ourselves in the flow with another, either in the giving or here in the prayer with our Lord to lose ourselves in that flow, to lose a sense of who we are, to realize that who we really are is connected with everyone and everything. In that moment, that is the reward. Just like we were talking about earlier, to get away from ourselves, to get out of our own heads so we can see what is right in front of us. 
And what is right in front of us is the connection of all things in God's spirit. We can't see that when we're in our heads, when our minds are calculating and working in competition with everyone and every, everything else and seeing ourselves as separate from. But that reward is simultaneous with the action as it is done. It's so important for us to understand this. It's not a quid pro quo here. The reward is the experience of this here-now connection, losing our sense of self as a separate being and lost in this flow. So the reward becomes more actually a byproduct of the connection of the moment rather than a future outcome if we do something good right here and right now in a legal sort of way. So understanding reward is important if we're going to get what Jesus is talking about. It shows us who we really are. Then he tells us to avoid meaningless repetition the way the heathens do, the way the non-Jews do, the Gentiles do. The word there in Greek is batalageo, which is an interesting word. It comes from Batus, who was an early Greek poet, but a really bad one, <laughs> who went on and on and on with these long poems, with all this repetition, and just bored everyone silly. So they actually made a word out of his name, which came to mean to stammer, to stutter. And the Aramaic is the same. The word there that is used means to stammer or to stutter. And that gives you the visual image of what Jesus is talking about. Don't stay, sit there and stand there stammering and stuttering and repeating over and over again the way the Gentiles do. If you remember the scene on Mount Carmel between Elijah and the prophets of Baal, they create the, the altar and they put the fire, uh, they put the wood around it and they're supposed to call down fire from their God. And the, the, the prophets of Baal are doing this from morning until noon and Elijah's mocking them and saying, maybe you need to yell a little bit louder. Maybe he's just sleeping. Maybe he's on a trip and he hasn't heard you yet. But that idea of over oh, for hours and hours yammering about the same thing over and over again, it's a form of control, right? It's a way of trying to control the deity, actually, to get the things that you want, to be able to bend circumstances to your advantage. Jesus says, don't fall into that game. It's, it's, it's just so unnecessary. Your father knows what you need before you even ask. There is that connection there. All you need to do is realize the connection. That doesn't take a lot of words. That doesn't take any words. But he's contrasting here with everything that the people are seeing around them as being prayer and trying to get them to understand there's something different. Just as with almsgiving that we talked about last week, prayer is not a tax and prayer is not an investment. In other words, prayer isn't a legal obligation that we need to do three times a day and all the other structure of, of Judaism at the time. Because as soon as it is an obligation, it's no longer a gift, it's no longer a prayer. It becomes just another tax. And if you bring any agenda to your prayer, now it's an investment. It's not just pure communication anymore. You are looking for something back. If you bring an agenda to prayer, you're lost before you begin. There is no connection possible because you're thinking about the outcome. You're already positioned someplace other than where you are. How in the world can you lose yourself in that connection if your agenda is such? Jesus is first telling us here what prayer is not. 
right? It's not any of these things that you are so familiar with. It's not any of these things that even your leaders are telling you it is or showing you that it is. It's something else. So he's telling us what prayer is not, first of all, so that we can compare and contrast. Now he's going to start to tell us what it is. And more to the point, he's going to tell us how it is. How do you do prayer? What does it look like to be someone who prays, and as Paul said, prays continuously? What does that look like to pray continuously throughout your day? How do we develop an attitude of prayer that defines us as people? That becomes a part of our character. This is what Jesus is after. Now, he has to tell us this in words, of course, because what else has he got to work with? But it's important for us to understand that it's not just the words here that are important. It's where the words are leading us. And we tend to misunderstand these things. And I read this before, and so there may be some repeats for you, but I just think it's so cool that when small children hear these prayers and then they recite them back, have you ever noticed, have you ever listened to a lyrics of a song and you have no idea what they actually said, so you sing something that it sounds like, and then someday you find out what the, word, the lyric actually was, like, oh my gosh, is that what they were actually singing? Ah, you know? So there's a Sunday school teacher who asked her class, what was Jesus' mother's name? One child answered Mary, and the teacher asked, well, who knows what Jesus' father's name was? And a little kid said, Verge. Verge? Confused, the teacher asked, where did you get that? The kid said, well, you know, they're always talking about Virgin Mary. (laughs) There was a three-year-old boy who said, our father who does art in heaven. Harold is his name. (laughs) In Uniontown, Ohio, another boy said, give us the day, give us this day our jelly bread. When my twin daughters were young, I taught them to say the Lord's Prayer before going to bed. As I listened outside their door, I could hear them say, give us this steak and daily bread, and forgive us our mattresses. A six-year-old was overheard reciting the Lord's Prayer at a church service and said, and forgive us our trash passes as we forgive those who passed trash against us. Okay. One particular four-year-old prayed, and forgive us our trash baskets as we forgive those who put trash in our baskets. Grand Junction, Colorado, when I was younger, I believe the line was, lead a snot into temptation. I thought that I was praying for my little sister to get into trouble. Or, Or the little New York boy who petitioned God to lead us not into Penn Station (laughs) and deliver us from eagles. And a four-year-old, lead us not into temptation, she prayed, but deliver us some email. It's so funny when you're just hearing syllables, when you're just hearing the phonetics of it. You know, you do the best you can, and then you assign meaning to it. And that's what these kids are doing. And we're laughing. We're having a good time with this. But we do exactly the same thing, don't we? Even though we've got the right words, we have no idea what they mean. And we just say this prayer. We say this prayer at the end of every Sunday. And we're going to keep doing it. There's nothing wrong with saying the prayer. But if we can learn to say the prayer as a reminder of the intention to live the way and live the life that the prayer is leading us toward, then it becomes something that's reinforcing in a positive way and not just reciting syllables. Some of you have heard me do this before, but to me it was, it was fascinating to hear the Lord's Prayer in Aramaic for the first time. And I wanted to... Uh, be able to do that myself and, and memorize it. Let's see if I can still remember. So this is going to be a version of Syriac 
which is a different dialect than Jesus would have used, and my pronunciation will be all off. But with those disclaimers, Abundavashmaya, Nitkadashmach, Tete Malchuta, Neve Sebyanach, Hakana Davashmaya Afbara, Havlan Lachma, Desunkana Nyomana, Vashvoklan Hoben, Hakana Tafkanan, Shwakan Lachayavain. It sounds so alien, doesn't it? But it's beautiful, isn't it? Even as poorly as I am pronouncing it, there's something about Aramaic, there's something about the roundness of the sound and the tones that come across. It's just amazing language to hear spoken. But it's pointing us somewhere. And if we can move our heads from what we understand in English about what's going on and take it into this mindset, take it back into this alien place of people who lived so long ago in such a different culture, we can start to understand more and more about what it is that Jesus is trying to get across here. Because like poetry, the words of the Lord's Prayer were not meant to just be slavishly recited. They are pointing to the truth about prayer. The words are not the prayer itself so much as the pointing toward the prayer. And in this Hebrew and Aramaic context, we can start to get some clues from the roots of the words and from the words themselves. The Lord's Prayer has only five lines. And that's an interesting number. Now, does this really have any significance? I don't know, but it's kind of cool to me. The number five in Aramaic uh, number system and and symbology uh, is the number of man, the number of mankind, because we're like a five-pointed star. We've got a head, two hands, and two feet. And so it was understood as the the number of man. It was also understood as a number of initiation, an initiation into something new. And so you had this idea of man initiating, becoming Just like the number 40, 5 times 8, 8 being rebirth, is an initiation into rebirth. That's why when you see the number 40, it's always about a time of trial and testing, a time of initiation into something very different than when you started out. So this time of becoming, this time of initiating for mankind, I like that. You can put it on your fridge if you want, but don't necessarily take it to the bank, because who knows? But it's five lines lining up with this idea of becoming an initiation is where the prayer is really leading us. And again, it's a condensing of all of Jesus' message in all of Jesus' way. Not the spoken prayer, but this symbol or signal of intention to an attitude and a way of living our lives. And so with the first line, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Our Father in heaven, holy is your name, or make holy your name. Every, every word there, our, Father, heaven, right, and name and holy, all are very significant. When you say avun, we've talked about ab being the name for Father, but when you add the suffix avun, you're extending it into infinity in a way. And so that larger sense of father becomes our father. It's everyone's father. It's no longer just your nuclear dad, your bio dad. 
or the one who raised you. Now it is like a cosmic parent. It is everyone's father. It's larger than that. And so we have this idea of our father who is in heaven, Shemaiah, that place, unseen place of unity and connection. So this cosmic parent who is that oneness, is that place of connection. Make holy his name. Now the Shem we've talked about, the name before, it doesn't just mean something that we call something, but it it was like the outer countenance or the outer skin of something that shows the inner essence. And so Shem means that inner essence, the character, the reputation of someone. So when we're told to pray in Jesus' name, it's not just tacking those three words at the end of a prayer and think somehow superstitiously that now we get what we want because we prayed in Jesus' name. It's to pray in his character. It's to pray essentially as Jesus would pray himself, which is the definition of an answered prayer. To make holy his name. To make holy means to dedicate, to set aside for a specific purpose and to be used only for that purpose. If you make something holy, you're dedicating it. To make holy God's name is to create a special place within us. What it's really talking about is clearing a space within us. The word for prayer in Aramaic, selah, is a hunting term in its roots that means to lean into, to incline toward. It had the idea, the imagery of setting that, that snare, that trap for an animal in the forest, covering it up with leaves and retiring into the blinds where every nerve is on a hair trigger and you're waiting for something to happen. That kind of attention, that kind of awareness, that kind of presence is what prayer is all about. For us to make God's name holy is to make his essence and his character available to us because we are there present. We're opened up, we're hollowed out. We have gotten rid of the things that would keep him at arm's length, that would resist his presence to us. All the things we think we know, all the things we think we are, all the things that that we cling on to out of our fear, to let those drop, as we were talking about before, is clearing this space, making holy his character for us. To do what with? Well, the next line, your kingdom come, your will be done. So on earth as in heaven. The first line is really another form of Hebrew poetry where the concepts are being repeated. God's kingdom and God's will are really one and the same thing. God's, this kingdom is God's will here on earth, if you want to look at it that way. And will, sebiana in Aramaic, is not will the way we think of will. It really means pleasure, desire, delight, deepest purpose. It's a good thing. It's a happy thing. It's not a bulldozer that's going to come and take away all of your desires. It's about us matching our desires to God's desire. That's really what this is all about, the second line. Your kingdom come. In other words, your desire, delight, and deepest purpose, make it manifest on this earth, in our lives. As in heaven, so on earth. In other words, if we can match, when we are cleared out, right? When we are opened up, and we allow and see for the first time what God's real character and essence is, what God's will really is, what pops him out of bed like a piece of toast, what he can't wait to get to, what his greatest desire is. When that becomes our desire, when we match ours to God's, everything starts to change. If you have your handouts, because um, Brandon won't have them, I have some paraphrases 
that I actually was forgetting to read. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. How would we say that given what we're talking about right now? Our creator and parent of all. All creation carries the signs of your love, desire, and purpose by which you are known. We clear a special place for you, for your love, desire, and purpose in our hearts and lives. Your kingdom come, your will be done, as in heaven so on earth. May your desire and purpose become as real in our hearts and lives as they are in yours. You see where this is going? Give us the bread of our need this day. These are translated directly from the Syriac Aramaic version. Help us see that everything we need for this day, this moment, is contained in this day and this moment, and nowhere else. The bread, the lachma, is not just physical bread that we eat. It was understood spiritually, symbolically, as all provision, everything that we need as human beings, whether it's emotional, physical, spiritual, all of that. And God is the source of everything. Everything that we have comes from God. And so to get this provision, this sustenance that we need so deeply on all levels, the reality is the only place where we'll ever get it is here and now. Because the only place we will ever access God is here and now. We said at this corner of here and now, right? It's the only place that we will access God. The only place that we can get this provision And so you immerse yourself in the moment. Immerse yourself in the day. So often when a moment is painful, what do we do? We back off. We exit the moment. We self-medicate. We do whatever we can. But guess what happens? We get wounded in the moment, and we exit the moment. Simultaneously, we're exiting any type of healing that could take place. Because the only way that we'll be healed is in the moment in connection with our God. To learn to lean into the moment, even when it hurts, to be present to the pain as well as to the joys of life, is to open ourselves up to the lachma, to the provision that is there for us, but we will never access any place else. To immerse in the moment. Give us the bread of our need this day. It's only this day. It all happens. (laughs) It's all happening at the zoo. No, it's all happening right here and right now, this day, this life, this moment, because God can only be accessed right now. Next line. Forgive us our debts, just as we forgive our debtors. Release us from all that binds us and keeps us from your deepest purpose, your kingdom. And remind us that it is in our own releasing of the pain and resentment we hold toward others that we find our release in you. This idea of forgiveness. In Aramaic, forgiveness and freedom have the same root word. They're both derived from the same word. And so in that root and pattern system, you understand the way that the Hebrew mind worked, how they saw life. If forgiveness and freedom descend from the same root word, then they saw them as the same thing. A little bit different dialect, but the same thing. To be forgiven is to be set free. To be set free is to be forgiven. To be restored to your original position, your original state, is to be forgiven and to be set free. Because the debt there 
with any imbalance in life. It could be a, an actual financial debt. You've got two peers, two friends. One borrows money from the other, and now you've got an imbalance. Now you've got a creditor, creditor and a debtor, right? To restore the imbalance is to be forgiven. To restore the imbalance is to be set free. See how that works? So whatever it happens to be, if one perpetrates against another, you've got an imbalance. If one person gets sick, they're not well anymore, there's an imbalance. To be set free, to be healed, all the same concepts. So that's why you see in Luke, it's, you know, forgive us our trespasses, forgive us our sins. Here, it's forgive us our debts. But the concept in Hebrew is exactly the same. It's an imbalance that needs to be restored to find the equilibrium again. And so here we are with this healing and release from the traumas and the programs of our past. What is it that we're trying to get released from? It's always something in the past, isn't it? If you're unforgiven, if you're out of balance, if you're in some kind of debt relationship, it's something that happened in the past that is still affecting your present. To be forgiven of our debts is to be forgiven of the traumas of the past, of the programs that were put in place because of the problems of the past that are still following us around in our unconscious as core beliefs. What Jesus is focusing on here is the work that we need to do in order to get freed from all that binds us, all that limits us, all that keeps us from being able to see what is right in front of us in our relationships, in our moments. And to realize that forgiveness is not something that God grants because God is forgiveness. If God is love, then God is forgiveness, and God is redemption, and God is healing. When you approach God, that's what you get. How can you get anything else except what God is? He doesn't decide to give or not forgive. He is forgiveness. Jesus was trying to teach us, how many times do we forgive? Seven times? No. Seventy times seven times. Oh, 490 times, and then I'm done. I don't have to do it anymore. Seven is the number of perfection and spiritual perfection. Ten is the number of millennium or even infinity. Seventy times seven is like saying forever in a day. Jesus is trying to get these things across to us within the symbolism of his own time. God is forgiveness. There never will be a time that you're not forgiven from God's point of view. Do we know that? Do we feel that? Absolutely not. But we are as forgiven as we want to be. To be set free is to realize that we already are in God's eyes. But the work that it takes for us to get to that point can be lifelong. And is the stone ever really smooth? Maybe, maybe not. It doesn't matter so much, except that we understand the principle that Jesus is trying to get across to us. We're asking God forgiveness, but it's not so much a petition, really, it's about being able to realize the forgiveness that is already right in front of us because of who God is. That's it. And then finally, do not let us enter into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Notice the different phrasing there coming from the Aramaic. It's not, don't lead us into temptation. God, of course, doesn't lead us into temptation. The Bible says God never tempts. You know, God's not going to do that. So that is a way that it was translated in the King James, and of course it just rolls off our lips, and that's what we say. But it's important for us to have 
a little mental translator, a little Google translator in our head that will tell us it's not God who leads us into the temptation. This is more like, don't let us enter into the temptation. But even beyond that, the word for temptation is the same word as for a test or a trial. Don't let us fail the test. That's really what this is all about. Don't let us fail. Don't let us be diverted. And then, deliver us from evil. Another form of poetry. Really, those two phrases are exactly the same. Saying the same thing in different words, in different images. So do not let us... Do not let us be diverted from our true purpose and deliver us from the inability to become complete and one with you and with each other. Don't let us fail that test. Deliver us from ongoing distraction would be a great way to put this. Help us to remain undiverted from our and from God's purpose. Another great way to put this. Help us to become mature. Not Bisha. Remember Bisha? Taba and Bisha, good and evil, ripe and unripe. Help us to become Taba, mature, not Bisha. Help us to become ripe, whole, and complete simply by staying on course. All these things we do in the first four lines, if we don't maintain the course, where does it all come to? It's all about remaining undiverted, staying on course with this. Jesus makes a point of this in Luke 11. And there's a little bit of Luke 11 there, but if, if Brandon puts up Luke 11 starting at verse 1, I'm going to read a little bit more than I could fit onto the insert here. So starting at verse 1, it happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, after he had finished, so you have to imagine he's praying and all his disciples are watching him or they're seeing him afar. They know he always used to leave, go off on his own someplace, and then he'd come back, and they know that he was going to pray. So while Jesus was praying in a certain place, after he'd finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John also taught his disciples. And Jesus said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. So there's an abbreviated version of the Lord's Prayer. Now you notice that one doesn't have for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. Frank and I, it's getting to be eight years ago, I think, we went to uh, a Catholic retreat center in outside of Tucson in the middle of the Saguaro Forest. It was really cool. And the first time we got together to have Mass and they, they, uh, we always recite the Lord's Prayer in the Mass. I grew up Catholic. He grew up Baptist. And I was just waiting for him to do it because we said the Lord's Prayer and then everybody stops and then all Frank by himself, for thine is the... <laughs> they don't say it in, in, uh, in Catholicism. Why not? What's the, what's the deal with this last line? In the most ancient manuscripts, this line doesn't occur. It occurs in, earlier, in, in later, more recent manuscripts. And so if you notice, it's going to be in brackets if you read a 20th century translation like the NIV or something. They're just letting you know, okay the most ancient manuscripts that are usually considered to be um, more accurate. It doesn't occur. But it's a beautiful and traditional end to Jewish prayers. You know, it's a, a way that Jewish prayers are typically ended with some sort of doxology like that. Um, but in terms of our translation here, it's not as important to us. And uh, the, the few manuscripts that the Catholics use to get the Latin Vulgate and one on that tra translated down through the centuries um, didn't include that line but it is included in the 
in the Protestant version, so you get all that for free. But the idea here is right after Luke gives the version of the prayer that he gives, he immediately, in, in verse 5, says, Then he said to them, it's so important to understand when things are in proximity, it means they're related. It means that there's context there to understand. So these two little stories and the moral of the story that he's going to give are related to the prayer. Teach us to pray. Okay, hear the words. But then he turns around and says, suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, friend, lend me three loaves at midnight. All right. <laughs> for a friend of mine has come to me from a journey and I have nothing to set before him. So he's distressed because of hospitality rules. He should have something to give to his friend. But it's midnight, all right? And from the inside, his friend answers and says, don't bother me. The door has already been shut and my children and I are in bed. I cannot give up, get up and give you anything. Now you have to understand most of the, of the uh, Judean families who were poor enough and even if they weren't, they slept all in one room together. When we were down in Mexico, and the poorest of the poor down there, they had one bed, and everybody was sleeping in the bed together. Same idea. So they're all tucked in. And if he gets up, he's going to wake them all up, and it's going to be bedlam at midnight. So he says, no, I'm not going to do that. And then Jesus says, I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he's his friend... Yet because of his persistence, he will give up, get up and give him as much as he needs. You've got to see the humor here. Just because he's his friend, he's not going to get up. But because he keeps banging on the door and won't go away, now he'll get up and give him what he needs just to get him gone. You know, it's great to see that. Now, is Jesus talking literally about this is what God will do? That sometimes he's going to be too busy to answer your prayer or to give you what you need? No, we can take this too literally, and that's not what's going on here. What Jesus is trying to get across is that it, this is about the persistence. This is about being undiverted. This is about staying on course and not giving up. That's what he's talking about. He said, if you think just because things have not gone your way yet, and so you want to abandon all the principles that you have learned here, if you don't do that, if you stay on course, if you keep banging on the door, it's going to end up okay. It's going to end up all right, even if it's not what you're imagining right now. All right? Your father will be there for you. And then he gives us a moral of the story at verse 9. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. And we've talked about this before, ask, seek, and knock. Three words in Aramaic, selu, related to selah, that leaning in, that attentiveness, right? Same root. But selu is like not just a casual asking for something. It's like a police interrogation. There's an urgency behind it. There's, there's a drive behind it. There's a desire behind that asking. And to seek, be'ah, is a diligent search from inside to outside. And koshfa is really interesting, the, the third one, to knock. It means literally to pound a tent peg into the ground or to strike a musical note. What does that have to do with anything? Well, it has to do with knocking. It's making a noise. But it also has to do with making something real for others. As soon as you put those tent pegs in, you create a space that people can live in. As soon as you strike a note, it's something that everyone can hear and join into the music of. There's the idea of making something real, realizing something in the moment. 
It starts with that intense desire, that asking. It moves from just a, a, a passive desire to an active search that leaves no stone unturned. And that leads to a realization of something that everybody can apprehend. It's another three-step process and even further condensation of Jesus' way. This is how it works. He's saying, if you will not give up, if you have that desire, if you will not be diverted, there is going to be koshv. There is going to be that realization. The note will sound. The tent will exist for you to live. And furthermore, there's one more thing at verse 11. Now suppose one of you fathers... All of you out there, he says, one of you who are fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he asks for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask of him? He's showing us in ways that we can understand a Kalve Homer argument, light and heavy. If it's true in the light, it's truer in the heavy. If you who are evil, bisha, immature, not ready for prime time, will give good things to your kids, how much more is your Father in heaven? If you keep knocking, if you keep seeking, if you keep asking, if you remain undiverted, this is the nature of it. Stay on course. Keep moving. God is going to meet you there. There's no way that he won't. And so we have these five steps that Jesus is giving us in the Lord's Prayer. And this written prayer that we recite all the time is just a reminder of the intent behind them to first clear a space, those little boxes on the side of each one of those in your handout, to first clear the space, to open up, to be willing to let go, right, unilaterally, before there is any evidence that you will be met, to let go of the things that are limiting you and keeping you from being able to see what is right in front of you so that you can match your desire with God's desire, so you can be imprinted, you can be identified with everything that is important to God. And when it becomes important to you, right, then kingdom is active on earth in your human form. And then you will realize that everything that you need is only here and now always here and now. You can immerse in the moment. The bread of your need this day is this day, this moment, this life. Stop looking for outcomes or things out there. Jesus said you'll never find kingdom out there by observation. It's here. It's within. It's in your midst. It's among you. It's right here in community, immersed in this moment. Then we are also doing the work that will release us from the past. The traumas, the hurts, starting with our earliest childhood, the things that drag us down, the things that dog us, and continue to create thought and behavior patterns that always get us into the same messes. We can be released. We can be freed as we move through this process. And if we will remain undiverted, if we will show up every day, day after day, still enthused, still invigorated to the process, there will be a realization of all of this, not only in our lives, but then we become salt and light to everyone around us, enriching their lives as well. To ask, to seek, to knock on a process of this way is what this prayer is all about. It is the structure, it's the form, it's the attitude 
Jesus is trying to create an attitude toward prayer for us. And our mistake, as always, is to literalize, is to legalize, is to intellectualize, and understand this only from the point of view of what the words actually mean, rather than to where they're pointing. Our true righteousness, maybe that's not a good word for us here and now, our rightness with God isn't earned as a reward for doing the obligations of the law. We realize our righteousness, our rightness with God. When the obligations cease to be obligations, cease to be limitations, and become our deepest pleasure, our delight, our will, as it is in heaven. Our reward, God's reward, is always getting lost in the pleasure of living God's will on this earth. When that's our deepest pleasure, where is the catch? Right? Where is the resistance anymore? Where is the blockage? Talked about healing as the lifting of the blockage that limits us. Where is it? The Lord's Prayer is really the Lord's life. Yeah? The Lord's Prayer is really the Lord's life. How he lived, his shem, his character, prayer in his name, literally. How Jesus lived looks like love. Knowing God is knowing love, and knowing love is knowing God, and knowing God is living love. All of this connects simultaneously in the moment, both how and reward at the same time. So it's up to us maybe to stop seeing the Lord's Prayer as a prayer to recite. Stop just reciting the Lord's Prayer and start living it. But I think even better is to say the prayer as the reminder for the way of life that it really is. So when we say the Lord's Prayer in just a few minutes, think of it that way, as that five-step way of living life, as a reminder and a signal of your intention as you recite it, as you say it faithfully when you do, as a remembrance of and another reminder to intentionally engage your life in this way. That's where Jesus is trying to take us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this prayer. But take us beyond the words, Lord. Take us beyond what we think we know, even about your prayer, so that we can find the depths of where you are trying to lead us. We can see, as your Father sees, the connection and the deepest purpose. Our will, our desire, matched with yours. Father, thank you for this. Thank you for everything that you keep showering on us to try to get us into your presence. Give us the strength to free ourselves from whatever is limiting us as we clear a space for you and find pleasure in what you take pleasure in and never become weary in the well-doing. Thank you, Father, for everything. Never let us forget we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Let's all stand.